The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Well, welcome to 2020 and a very quick pop quiz for all of you this morning. How many of you have set some kind of a New Year's resolution and be honest, you are in church, you've already broke some or all of that resolution? Raise your hand, come on, be honest. Be honest, a couple of you. Okay, how many more, how many of you, different question, how many of you are actually uh, more like me? And um, your approach to resolutions is, you know, you aim low and then that way um, there's no disappointment. So I just don't have, I just don't have any New Year's resolutions, right? There you go, my people. It is safe, you're welcome here. Um, so it is great to be here with you in January and hopefully, um, because it is January, hopefully you have spent at least a little bit of time Um, thinking about what it is that you want to do differently in the new year. Uh, Because January, it really is the season of self-improvement, right? I want to make myself a better version of me. You want to make yourself a better version uh, of you. And that's great, and that leads to some very interesting things in our world, Which um, one of which is that in the month of January, a number of different businesses in our world that really don't do that well in the month of December. They do very well in January, right? Things like gyms and health clubs, vitamin shops, all those places, they tend to do really, really well in the month of January. And that's a good thing, right? It's good to stop and evaluate and to reevaluate and think about what you're eating and what you're not eating and if you need to lose weight and whether or not you're exercising enough, right? Those are all good things. Um, But the truth is, for most of us in the month of January, and especially the first half of the month, um, just simply because of our culture and just simply because of the world that we live in, it's very easy for us to be very consumed with the question of how do I make myself a better version of me, right? That's the question that's so easy for us to focus on. How do I get slimmer? How do I get smarter? Um, How how do I get stronger? How do I get out of debt? Or how do I stay out of debt? And again, all those questions are good questions. In fact, I I would argue um, that if you're not a follower of Jesus, this, in fact, is a great question for you to ask um, all year long. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, I want to actually just kind of change our focus a little bit. And I want us to begin to think about a different question And the reason I want us to focus on this question um, is because asking and answering this question may, in fact, lead to you, years from now, looking back on 2020 and seeing this particular year as a defining moment either in your life or your family's life. And see, the challenge that comes with this question is this is a question that many of us don't ever stop to really think to ask intentionally. And when we do think to ask it, it can be very difficult to answer, especially for the first time. And the answer that we come up with may, in fact, disturb us. And yet, this is the question that I want us to spend a little bit of time thinking about, and I want to challenge you to think about, and for us as a church to think about together over these next several weeks. And so, the story and the section of the scripture that I want to focus our attention on as we do this is the book of Nehemiah. So if you'd open up your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1, which is on page 750 in those Bibles in the seat back in front of you. Now, Nehemiah really is an autobiography, and it is the story of an exceptional leader who does an amazing thing. And the interesting thing about the book of Nehemiah, particularly if you are not really much of a Bible person or if you're a little bit of a Bible skeptic, uh, is that there are no miracles in the book of Nehemiah. Right? So Nehemiah really um, is a book about vision, it's a book about leadership, it's a book about 
discipline and hard work. Um, So it's a very, very interesting, it's a very powerful story. And it sets us up to ask this question that I want all of us to think about and to ask ourselves and to talk about and to pray about over these next several weeks. And so let me give you a little bit of context uh, for what it is that we're going to read here together in just a couple of moments. In 975 B.C., the nation of Israel, after the third death of the king of Israel, the king of Solomon, the nation of Israel was divided into two separate kingdoms. A northern kingdom, which consisted of ten of the twelve tribes, and then a southern kingdom, which consisted of the tribes of Benjamin and Judah. Now, the reason the nation was divided is because the kingdoms in the north, they stopped worshiping God, and they started worshiping a bunch of idols and pagan gods from the people that were around them. Now, this led to, in 722 B.C., them being conquered by the Babylonian Empire. The southern kingdom remained faithful at this point, but in 586 B.C., they stopped worshiping God as well. They fell away, and so they ended up being conquered by the Babylonians also. Now, at this time in 586 B.C., the ruler of the Babylonian Empire is a man that you probably have heard of before. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. And one of the things that made Nebuchadnezzar so brilliant was instead of just going in and ransacking and then executing all the nations, the conquered peoples, um, what he would do is he would go and he would find the best and the brightest of those nations. He would take them and he would bring them out of their nation and into his nation, into his capital city of Babylon, where they would live as his advisors. This is how Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all those guys that many of you have probably heard of before, it's how they end up getting out of Judah and getting into Babylon. Now, all of this happens, and so in 586 B.C., essentially the nation of Israel ceases to exist. The city wall is destroyed, the city itself is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, and so for about 70 years, almost exactly 70 years, the nation of Israel ceases to function, and this period of time is what is known as the exile. Now, After 70 years goes by, the Babylonians themselves, they are actually captured by the Persian Empire, and their leader is Cyrus the Great. And Cyrus the Great does something very unusual, and he issues this proclamation, and he says, if you have been taken out of your homeland, you are now welcome to go home. You don't have to, but you are free to go if you would like to. And so this results in thousands and eventually hundreds of thousands of Jewish people leaving and going back to the southern kingdom of Judah to go and try to rebuild and restart their nation. But the problem is it doesn't go very well. Because after being gone for 70 years, the economy is completely decimated and the city is in ruins and other people from the surrounding nations, they've begun to move into this region of the world and all these people are like, okay, where did all these Jewish people suddenly show up from, right? And so there's all this kind of turmoil and so for about 90 years, right, 90 years after the 70 years, for the nine, those 90 years, the nation of Israel and the Jewish people, they struggle. But God had made this group of people a promise. And God always keeps his promises. And as is so often the case, God used a person to accomplish in this world what it is that he wanted to accomplish. And see, this is where we meet Nehemiah. The year is now 445 B.C., and Nehemiah is a Jewish man who was born and raised in exile in Persia. And see, for him, life is great. 
He's never been to Judah. He's never been to Jerusalem. No, he lives in the palace, in the king's palace, in the Persian Empire. And so his life is comfortable. His life, in many ways, is very much like many of our lives. We have, he had everything he needed and most of what he wanted. And his life, although not perfect, was just like our lives, better than most. And see, this is what makes Nehemiah's story such a fascinating story for us to look at and for us to think about and for us to talk about as we begin this new year and very specifically as we begin to think about this question that I want us to think about together over these next several weeks. Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, says this. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, right, in the month of Kislev. Now, this is, in fact, a very important detail because what this is telling us is that this is history, right? This isn't once upon a time. No, Nehemiah is saying, listen, fact check me if you want to, and what you will discover is that everything I'm about to tell you is absolutely true. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I, Nehemiah, was in the citadel of Susa. Now, Susa is the modern day, it was or is now the modern day city of Shush. This is a picture of the ancient part of the city of Shush. This is in Iran today, and this is what the ancient part of the city looks like, and it's what the whole city looked like back in Nehemiah's day. Verse 2 Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. So this guy shows up, this group of guys show up to Nehemiah, and so Nehemiah naturally asks them, hey, how's it going? Are we a city again yet? Are we a nation again yet? Is the temple rebuilt yet? Has the wall been rebuilt yet? And so they respond, they said to Nehemiah in verse 3, those who survived the exile, they are back in the province, but they are in great trouble and disgrace. In other words, Nehemiah, no, things are not going well. In fact, things are going terribly. Right? The wall of the city has been broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Which basically means, Nehemiah, we're defenseless. Nehemiah, our, our city is, is a no man's land. We have absolutely no way of protecting ourselves or protecting anybody that, that's there. And then Nehemiah says this very, very striking statement in verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. Right, in other words, for Nehemiah, this was not simply news, right? This was not simply, oh, you know, I'm so sorry to hear that. Uh, I'm so sorry that's so bad for them. But see, don't forget, remember, I live in Susa. I live in the palace, and I work for a king. I'm raising my family in the most wealthy, the most powerful, the most influential culture in the world. And really, I am. I'm so sorry to hear about everything that's going on in Jerusalem, but you know what they say, right? Better them than me. Right? That was not Nehemiah's response. When he found out what was going on, his heart is broken. And he weeps. And for days, he tells us, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then he records for us what his prayer to God was. O oh Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant. 
Right? Nehemiah is reminding God who he is. He's saying, you know who you are, don't you? You know that you are the God who always keeps his promises. You, you haven't forgotten about that, have you? That you're the God who always keeps the promises he makes. And see, Nehemiah uses this very specific word, covenant, because God had established a covenant relationship with the people of Israel. So now what Nehemiah is about to do is he's going to repeat back to God some of the very words God spoke a thousand years earlier to the people of Israel when he made this covenant. You're the God, Nehemiah says, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and who obey his commands. Because in the Old Testament, God had set up this very specific covenant relationship with Israel, and it, it was to be a sign to the other nations of the world that would actually point them to who God is and what God was like. It was to be a covenant of, of love, which is absolutely unheard of, because, I mean, how in the world do you see love? How in the world is this going to point the other nations back to who you are, Israel would say to God. And God said, well, I'll tell you how it's going to point them back to me. Because I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. I'm going to rescue you from slavery. I'm going to make you into an incredibly huge nation. I'm going to give to you some of the best land on the face of the planet. And I'm going to do all of this for you. I've done all of it for you. And I have not asked you to do a single thing. I've done all of it simply because I love you, God would say. And the only thing that I'm asking of you in return is that you just simply love me. That's why it was a covenant of love. And the way that you do that, God would say, is that you keep the commands that I'm going to give to you. Verse 6, Nehemiah continues, Let your ear be attentive and your eye be open, he says, to the prayer that your servant is praying before you day and night. The prayer for your servants, the people of Israel. And then Nehemiah does something very, very interesting. Don't miss this. He says to God, I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my, my father's house. In other words, I'm not pointing fingers at everybody. I'm saying, no, I am just as guilty of this as anybody else is. We confess the sins that we have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. Right? In other words, he's saying, listen, we deserve to be thrown out of our nation. We deserved what happened to us. We did not obey the commands, the decrees, and the laws that you gave to your servant Moses. And then he begins to remind God, remember the instructions that you gave to your servant Moses saying? And now he's going to repeat again another part of the covenant back to God. If you are Israel, if Israel, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations, which is why Nehemiah is in Susa and not in Judah. But if you return to me and you obey my commands, God said, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Because Israel, Israel was to be God's nation. And the temple was to be the place where God's presence, where that resided on the earth. Verse 10. They, 
Israel. They are your servants, Nehemiah said, and your people whom you redeemed. In other words, he's saying, God, you, don't, you haven't forgotten what you did for these people, have you? You went to great work, God, to redeem your people, to bring them out of slavery in Egypt. And so now he's asking a question. He's saying, God, would you be willing to once again redeem? God, would you be willing, he's saying, to once again use your great strength and your mighty hand to redeem? Lord, he says, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of all your servants, your servants who delight in revering your name. And then Nehemiah asks God for something very, very specific. He says to him, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Because here is what Nehemiah is about to do. And remember, Nehemiah has it made. He's got a great job. He lives in a palace for free. He's got everything he needs and probably everything he wants. He is in daily contact with the most powerful person on the planet. And he is about to go to this person, to King Artaxerxes, and to say to this king, I need an indefinite leave of absence. I need to leave this amazing job that you've given me. I need to leave this palace where I and my family live for free. But by the way, I want them to stay here while I'm gone. And I want you to allow me to go back to my homeland, to go back to my people, and to rebuild my nation. Oh, and by the way, king, I want you to pay for all of it. See, this was very risky. You did not ask the king for favors. The king is the one who does all the asking. That's why he's the king. And even if Nehemiah was successful, right, this would be a huge, huge sacrifice for him. But see, Nehemiah's heart was broken. And he felt compelled to act on what he heard. And then Nehemiah ends this first part of his book by telling us and reminding himself of what it is that he was about to walk away from. He says, oh, and by the way, I was, right, past tense, cupbearer to the king, one of the most prominent positions in the entire palace. And so this brings us to the question that I want to ask you today to begin to think about. And I don't expect you to have an answer to this question, especially not yet today. But this is the thing that Nehemiah struggled with, and so I want you to struggle with it as well, just as I struggle with this question. And the question is simply this. What breaks your heart? Right? What breaks your heart? When you look around our world, when you look around our nation, when you look around your community, when you look at your neighborhood, when you look at your school district, when you look at what's happening to families and to children in, in our community, what, what is it that, that captures your emotion? What is it that breaks your heart? 
Right? In other words, when you're thinking about those things that you actually want to think about yourself, where is that place that your mind just naturally seems to go to? And when it goes there, it's so disturbing to you that you oftentimes try to force it to not go there. And you actually tell yourself the very same things that we all tell ourselves. And you say things like, well, it's always been that way. It's always going to be that way. I can't do anything about that because I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm too middle class. I'm too busy. But what is that thing? That, that no matter how many times you think about it, and no matter how many times your heart goes there, every time you think about it and every time your heart goes there, it just breaks a little more. What is that thing that breaks? Your heart. See, this is a powerful, powerful question. And so my challenge to you and to us as a church this year as we begin this brand new year together and as we begin this weekend together is that we would not just simply ask ourselves the question that everybody in our world asks at this time of the year, which is what should I do about me? But rather, we should ask the question, what should I do around me? Because he hears the truth, and I think every single one of us, Jesus follower or not, would agree with this. If you really want to become a better person this year, then this year do something that makes the world a better place. Because, see, here's something else that I know that's true about you because it's true about me. It's true about all of us. The people that you admire the most, the people that inspire you, right, the people that you actually look up to in your life, the people you tell stories about to your children, these are not the people who simply maintain their ideal weight, are they? Right? They're not the people who manage to somehow get out of debt, Right now, I mean, losing weight is good, getting out of debt is good, I'm not against any of those things. But what inspires you, right, what inspires me, the the stories that we tell our children about, the people that we are so grateful for in our world, these are the people who have made this world a better place. Right? Because the truth is this, nobody's going to change the world, but as you've heard me say many, many, many times, every single one of us, any one of us, can change the world for one person. All of us have the potential to find someone whose heart is where our heart is and join them in actually making a difference in this world. And listen, I get it. I understand why this is scary. I understand why, why sometimes there's something inside of us that just wants to push this away and kind of reject this whole idea and just not even think about that. But let me tell you what's going to happen to you and to us and to me if we don't do this, right? And this applies to all of us, me as much as you. If we do not ask and answer this question about what it is that God wants to have done and changed in this world, here's what's going to happen. You're just going to end up blaming. And blame is not a strategy for change. In fact, blame is how we avoid change, And again, if you are not a follower of Jesus here today, right, so far so good because this applies to all of us. In fact, the truth is, especially for those of us who live here in Metro Detroit in our little corner of the world, we are keenly aware of the fact that a number of the amazing things that have happened in our community over these last 20 years, they didn't didn't necessarily happen from people who subscribe to a particular religious belief. There's all kinds of amazing things that have happened in our community um, from, from people who had never heard of Nehemiah. Right? And they just simply acted on what it is that broke their heart. And see, if you are not a follower of Jesus, I can't tell you what to do with this. You just kind of have to figure that part out on your own. But if you are a follower of Jesus, right? if you are 
by that I mean if you are committed, right, to the best of your ability, because nobody, none of us, me included, none of us gets this perfect. But if you are a follower of Jesus, meaning that to the best of your ability, you are committed to living your life according to what it is that Jesus taught, okay, then you must be, we must be actively involved at some place in your life and some place in our culture making things better. Because listen, you cannot actively follow Jesus and not make things better. People who actively follow Jesus, they make things better. They just do. Right? You cannot actively follow Jesus and not make where you live, not make where you work, not make where you go to school better. It is impossible. Because of what it is that Jesus taught and what it is that Jesus modeled. Because what Jesus taught and what Jesus modeled is that devotion to God is in fact measured in terms of devotion to other people. Because every single person that you will ever be, that I will ever be eyeball to eyeball with in this world, are people who have been created in the image of God. People matter to God, and because of that, they need to matter to us. And so consequently, when you follow Jesus around all throughout the Gospels, what you discover is that everywhere Jesus went, he made things better and people were better off. Because Jesus, he did not simply feel compassion. He acted compassionately. And so for us, for you and for me to act like Jesus and to be like Jesus and to live lives like Jesus is to understand that there is no such thing as first class or second class. There is no us. There is no them. There are only people for whom Jesus died. And that to follow Jesus means... That I can't say, wait a minute, I can't allow, I cannot say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I cannot allow people to be treated as less than because my Savior never did that. In fact, history, I believe, will look back on this time period, the 20th and the 21st century, and it will say that the followers of Jesus, they were the ones who raised the issue of human trafficking to the surface for the very first time. That it was the followers of Jesus who championed the idea of justice for everyone for the very first time in the 20th and 21st centuries by elevating the issues of human trafficking all throughout our world. In the 17th and 18th centuries, it was the followers of Jesus. It was people like William Wilberforce who looked around their world and whose hearts were broken at the idea that other human beings made in the image of God were being bought and sold like property. So they were at the center of what became known as the abolitionist movement. It is always the followers of Jesus who stand up and who declare and demand justice and equality for everyone. Because when your Savior came into this world to die, he did not just die for the sins of some people, he died for the sins of all people. Because all people are created in the image of God. And this is a massive idea that your Savior and my Savior introduced to this world 2,000 years ago. And 2,000 years later, we are still struggling to believe it and to understand its ramifications. And see, this is why when something stirs your heart, when something stirs my heart, 
about the needs of humanity, about the needs of, of women and children and families in our world, that it is your heavenly Father who is stirring your hearts to say, listen, don't miss this. What you feel may only, in fact, be a small reflection of what I feel. Because after all, you are created in my image. So what breaks? Your heart. What breaks? Your heart. Now there's one very important aspect, one additional aspect of Nehemiah's story that I do not want us to miss today, especially for those of us who are followers of Jesus, and that is the fact that Nehemiah's heart was broken by divine design. Right? In other words, one of the things that ancient Jewish people believed is one of the things that followers of Jesus have always believed, which is that history is linear. That God is actually up to something in this world. That God has very specific ends in mind. And that God is always working towards something. And see what Nehemiah didn't know is that when God stirred his heart to go back to the city of Jerusalem and to rebuild those walls of that city, that it was simply a part of a series of events that started long before Nehemiah and would continue long after Nehemiah. That Nehemiah was playing a critical role, even though he had no idea of what it is that hung in the balance of listening to the burden that God had placed on his heart. Because all of it, All of it was, in fact, in preparation for what would happen 444 years later when the final Jewish prophet, priest, and king, the man that we know as Jesus, would walk through those very city gates. He would walk into that very city of Jerusalem. He would stand in the middle of that very temple and declare what it is that God had sent him into this world to do. That when Jesus came, that he came into this world to die for our sin because our sin broke his father's heart. And see, here's what some of you need to hear today, and maybe it's what all of us need to hear today. I don't know. But see, the truth is, for, for some of you, right, you have no idea. For all of us, we have no idea. We have no idea what, and we have no idea who. We have no idea what hangs in the balance and who hangs in the balance of embracing the burden and then acting on that burden that your heavenly Father has placed on your heart. And see, for some of you, you have no idea how impactful your future is going to be, but embracing that future means you've got to face up to what it is that actually breaks your heart. And see, answering this question, It doesn't mean that you have to become an activist. It doesn't mean you have to quit your job. It doesn't mean you even have to necessarily start anything, although maybe you will. I'm not advocating that anybody does anything irresponsible. It just simply means asking yourself the question, "Is, is there somebody that I could partner with? Is there an organization that I could become involved with? Is there an outlet that I could develop or use to make use of that extra time or that extra energy that that maybe is a result of something that has stirred my heart for a long, long time? See, this is how incredible things happen. This is how incredible change happens in our world. Because here's something I think every one of us know. 
If you really want to become a better person this year, then this year do something that makes the world or this year do something that makes somebody's world a better place because that is exactly what your Heavenly Father did for you. It's what your Savior did for you and for me. Let me pray for you today. Heavenly Father, it is absolutely amazing to think that in some way that I, I, none of us are going to ever comprehend on this side of eternity. Uh, Father, to think that, that our sin broke your heart. And that because of that, Father, you were not content to just feel that brokenness. But Father, you were actually compelled to act. That you would send your son, that you would pay, that you would redeem us, me, from my sin and from our sin. And so, Father, as the followers of your son Jesus here in this place today, as we begin this new year, Father, my prayer for us as your church is that we would follow Jesus' example, that we would allow our hearts to be broken by what it is that breaks your heart. And that, Father, that we would not simply feel those emotions and think those thoughts, but, Father, as scary as it may be, as big and as daunting as it may be, that we would act. And that we would act in a way that models the way that Jesus acted. That we would love. That we would forgive. That we would give and that we would sacrifice all, Father, to point back and to tell the amazing story of a God who always keeps his promises. And, Father, because that is who you are and because that is what you do, we ask that in these next few moments you would hear us as we confess personally and silently our sin to you. The good news of the gospel is that your heavenly Father has kept his promise. And because of his son's death on the cross, because of his son's shedding of his own blood for you, and based on his resurrection as the proof of the fact that your sin has been forgiven, I say to you today that your sin truly is forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen.